Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We are happy to return, to return the remainder of our meeting over to our brother Harry O'Brien. Good morning, let's turn our Bibles to Esther chapter 6, the book of Esther uh, chapter 6. Esther is a unique book uh, in the Old Testament. It's the only uh, book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God, actually. It's a story of, uh, out of Israel's history. So it's what we call narrative. It's a story that uh, was told, but it doesn't have doctr- doctrinal implications in the sense it's not talking about the unity we have or the, the, the way we meet as a church or any of those, those things. It occurs or it falls in between We've been looking at the book of Zechariah on uh, Wednesday nights and last Sunday, and this falls about 35 years after Zechariah, maybe 40 years after Zechariah, and 35 years before Nehemiah. And so even though when you're reading, you read Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, uh, Esther occurred before Nehemiah. In fact, if you're reading Ezra, uh, Nehemiah occurs at the end of chapter 6 before chapter 7, or Esther occurs before uh, the end of chapter 6 before chapter 7 starts. So that little blank spot on your page is where the book of Esther uh, falls. That's not so obvious when you're reading through Ezra, uh, and uh, the chronology doesn't always sort of uh, line up. But that's where it falls. And it's a story then that speaks of God's preservation. One of the themes that we've seen in uh, the book of Zechariah is how God cares and will care uh, for Israel. And this certainly speaks of his preservation. So I want to think of it sort of as an illustration of what we've looked at in a dispensational way, God's dealings with Israel, but in a devotional way, because there's something in here that would remind us of the Lord Jesus and of what we've just done in remembrance of him. And the the hero of the story really is a man by the name of Mordecai. It's not Esther that's the hero, it's Mordecai that's the the hero uh, of the story. And so Uh, We want to break in in chapter 6. It's uh, on a night in verse 1 that the king could not sleep. And so here's some divine providence of all the nights that he couldn't sleep and of all the things that he could have uh, done that night. He commands in verse, the rest of verse 1, the book of the records of the chronicles to be read before the king. And so it doesn't sound like very exciting uh, reading. It's a little historical account of things that happened. I don't know. Uh, he probably didn't have YouTube or he didn't have any of those things. So this is what he he called for. But interestingly, as he read, uh, he read of an account where Mordecai had uh, saved his life. Two men had uh, counseled um, together to kill the king. Mordecai overheard them. He reported it uh, to the king and was given credit for it, but never rewarded for that. So the king has insomnia, he can't sleep, and the records are read, and this, this account is read. And the king asks, uh, what's been done for him? And according to the records, nothing had been done for him. Now, this is one of these great divine coincidences that aren't coincidence because you see the hand of God. At the very moment, uh, Haman walked in, and Haman was an enemy of, of the Jews. Uh, I'll just read you a passage from chapter 9. But Haman, it says he's the enemy of all Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, uh, to consume them, and to destroy them. And that's what Haman uh, wanted to do. And so Haman comes in at that very, very moment. 
um, just coincidence. But of course it's not coincidence because we see the hand of God. So, so he gets up very early. And the reason he gets up so early is he wants to uh, appeal to the king uh, to, to have uh, Mordecai hung on gallows. And so he's probably had a sleepless night thinking, what am I going to say to the king? How am I going to approach the king? And he comes in very early. And the king's been sleepless and just read this account. And so he asks Haman the question, and this is a question uh, we can think of in terms of the Lord Jesus as the, the word from the throne is, what shall be done in verse 6, the end of verse 6, for the man whom the king delights to honor? What will be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which is a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may arraign the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Little did Haman know, as the enemy who was trying to annihilate them, that he just uh, just put himself in a terrible uh, position, a humiliating uh, position. So in verse 10, the king says to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And so at the end of verse 11, Thus shall it be done as he's prayed Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And so here he is, uh, the most unlikely of men in both cases, that Haman would be the one that has to honor and exalt uh, Mordecai, and that Mordecai should be honored and exalted in this way. He was obviously of not great importance. He was important enough that he annoyed Haman by not bowing down to him, but uh, here he comes and he's exalted and lifted up. The last time we saw uh, a picture of Mordecai is back in chapter 4, after he hears of Haman's plot. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So there he was, man of sorrows. What a name, wasn't it? There he was in the gate, clothed with sackcloth and ashes, crying out with a loud wail, the man of sorrows. But here he is, the man whom the king delights to honor. And so the world took no notice of him. The enemy of the people of God wanted to kill him. By way of illustration, Satan uh, would be represented by Haman and Haman's activities. It's always Satan's desire to annihilate that which uh, is precious to God, whether children of Israel in the Old Testament or Christians in the New Testament, uh, to destroy uh, either their lives or their testimonies. That's what Satan desires to do. And so Haman was involved in this activity. And so even as he comes with a plot to have Mordecai hung on the gallows, uh, this, this happens. And in chapter 7, if you've read the book of Esther, you understand what happened. Well, the two banquets occur. In the second banquet, Esther makes her appeal and uh, says it's Haman, this wicked one, this wicked man, Haman, who's plotted this, is going to kill myself and all the Jewish people. If you notice at uh, the end of chapter 7, uh, in part of verse, verse 9, 
just in part of that verse, it says, uh, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. So obviously visible, visible from the palace was this, uh, this gallows just outside the palace walls, visible close enough that the servant could say to the king, look, there it, there it is. This certainly reminds us of what happened at the cross of Calvary. Uh, Satan, of course, he entered into Judas to betray uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was behind that scheme. Uh, I'm sure in his heart and mind, the thought was, if he dies on the cross, that'll be the end of it. It'll be over and done. But for Haman, the gallows became the place of his demise. For Satan, the cross became the place of his demise. We read in Hebrews 2.14 that it was through death the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed him that has the power of death and freed those who all their lifetime were subject to bondage through fear. And so the cross was the place of defeat. In Colossians 2, we uh, read about principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them, in it, that is, in the cross. Not defeat, but triumph. And so it's, uh, you know, you'd say poetic justice in a sense, if you're talking in literary terms, that Haman tries all this and there's the gallows, and it ends up being the place of his defeat. And through this, of course, Israel is preserved. But there's more that, that happens to Mordecai. Uh, in chapter 8, Verse uh, verse 1, on that day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So not only on the cross did the Lord Jesus destroy him that had the power of death, but there's a little parable the Lord Jesus told in Matthew chapter 12 when he was accused of working in the spirit and power of the devil. Uh, he said, how could anyone ever spoil or rob a strong man's house unless he first came and bound the strong man and then spoiled his goods? And that's what the Lord Jesus did. Not only did he defeat Satan, but he took those things that Satan had. You see the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 with the keys of, of hell and of death, of Hades and of death in his hand. He took that which Satan had. Remember in Luke chapter 4, uh, Satan offered the Lord Jesus the glory of the kingdoms of the world. He says, for that's been delivered to me to give to whomsoever I will. The Lord Jesus has taken all that back. What was promised in Psalm 8, if we'd read on to the end, the dominion that man was promised will be returned and found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has been enriched as a result of Calvary. And so all that the enemy had now flows to him and becomes his. So chapter 8, verse 15, Mordecai went out of the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple and so on. There he was in chapter 4 sackcloth and ashes. Look at him now. Look, you saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight. Return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. There he is. It's, what a remarkable transformation. That he should be uh, wailing and weeping and clothed in sackcloth and ashes, and now he's clothed in this way. 
And notice at the end of that chapter, the last line, then many of the people of the land became Jews because of the fear of the Jews was on them. No more hating of the Jews, but as we've seen in Zechariah, there come a day when they'll lay hold of a Jewish person and say, we want to go uh, with you. And so here, uh, that that uh, enmity was taken away. Um, chapter 9, verse 4, For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, his fame spread through all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. That's been true of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? He came to earth and suffered, but certainly he's prominent. His gospel's been preached over all, all the earth. And of course, we are blessed to have heard it and respond. Look at the end of the, the book in chapter 10. Verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to his countrymen. And see, things we see in the book of Zechariah is ultimately when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again, uh, the Jewish people will be secure. The land will be restored to them. Bigger boundaries than they have today from the Nile to Euphrates. And they will dwell in peace and he will uh, rule over them, and he will speak uh, peace to them. Psalm 72, verse 8, depicts his kingdom as one of peace, righteousness, and peace uh, will be true of his rule and reign. And so he was great among the Jews and well-received. And so he's great among us, isn't he? The Lord Jesus and well-received. So a remarkable story. God not mentioned, but the hand of God. The preservation of his people and the exaltation of Mordecai, the defeat of the enemy, and the spoiling of the strong man's house. And now it all is in the hand of the one who has conquered. What a, what a remarkable story. You read it just as, as history. This just happened, uh, you know, perhaps in the year 481 B.C., uh, just an account of what happened. But there's more because the hand of God is so obvious uh, in it. Really. Thank you. That's a uh, great hymn. And several years ago, I was up at America's Keswick in New Jersey uh, for a lunch. And uh, the men who served the lunch were in their drug rehab program. Uh, there was about 70 of them, most of them off the streets of New York City. And after the lunch, they sang uh, as a choir, Victory in Jesus. Very, very touching moment to see those lives that had been redeemed, uh, up there singing victory in Jesus. Made a great impression on me for sure. It's uh, nice to see Murray and DJ McDonald here. Uh, now, I, they go to an assembly in Ontario at Deacon uh, Gospel Chapel, and I preach there on March the 29th. So now I have to have a second message uh, for that Sunday because uh, they're here. It's nice to see them. Uh, Murray and DJ, for many years, uh, ran a camp, Galilee Bible Camp. So there's a camp down here looking for a director. (laughs) Murray says, been there, done that. (laughs) But uh, good to see you. Let's turn our Bibles again to Zechariah. We want to start in Zechariah 13. We've been looking at uh, how God's plan and purposes for Israel will be unfolded. Uh, Last Sunday, though, we looked at the passages in Zechariah that talked about the Lord Jesus as the branch in chapter 3 and chapter 6, the branch of the Lord and his servant, the branch. 
And today when I think of a few passages here where uh, Zechariah talks about the Lord Jesus in particular, uh, either his first or second coming. But I want to start with a verse in chapter 6 to emphasize something we've been talking about. We've been talking about how important it is when you read the Bible to interpret it based on the context and the, the grammar and so on. What, what's it all about? And when you look at chapter 13, verse 6, this is a verse that sometimes, perhaps often, misapplied. Chapter 13 of Zechariah, verse 6, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And I've heard people over the years, probably more often in prayer, refer to this verse and apply it to the Lord Jesus Christ, as it's talking about him. But what it's talking about is false prophets. And so if you go back to verse 2, it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. His father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. It shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet, I'm a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And so what he's saying is, there's coming a time when idolatry would be done with, would be finished, and prophets, false prophets will be dealt with, dealt with very harshly. But he says the false prophets themselves will tell lies. And in a lot of idolatrous practices, they would cut themselves, they'd do things uh, to their body. And uh, this prophet would say, well, no, uh, it's not because of idolatry. I'm a farmer. I've been farming from my youth, and I've got these wounds in the house of my friends. And so it's not about the Lord Jesus at all. It's about people lying and saying, no, I didn't do that. Uh, I got these wounds because... Uh, this is what happened. And so it's important. I just share that to, to say the context is really important. There are other verses like that in the Old Testament where you often take them. Uh, Psalm 129 verse 3 uh, describes Israel, not the Lord Jesus, as back being as a plowed field. Well, in the context, it's Israel speaking, not the Lord Jesus. Uh, we can apply it and we can say it reminds me of, but we can't interpret it. For that. So that's the important uh, difference to do the context. Now I want to go to chapter 9. There's two main passages in here that we're perhaps somewhat familiar with because of the New Testament context. But in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, it talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be broken or cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And so here's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus, but it's it's a prophecy in two parts. It speaks of his first coming, then it speaks of his second coming. 
It has two comings in view. Uh, perhaps you've heard it described that in the Old Testament, as, as the prophets looked forward, they saw a mountain peak. Uh, in fact, they saw two mountain peaks, but they didn't see the valley in between. They didn't see the church, and they didn't see what God was going to do in between. So they, they see uh, a coming Messiah, and they see him suffering, but then they see another Messiah coming, and he's ruling and reigning. Jewish people uh, typically thought there was two messiahs, one who is going to suffer and one who is going to be the sovereign, one who is going to, to reign and rule. And so they were confused because they couldn't understand, well, how can, how can the Messiah uh, come and, and all this is said, a man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. How could that be true of him? And yet he's going to rule and reign. And so verses like this uh, depict that type of thing. He's meek and lowly, he's coming, he's riding on a donkey. And then it goes on in the next verse, in verse 10, to talk about his rule and reign. He'll speak peace to the nations, his dominion from sea uh, to sea. Now, I'll point out for the Canadians here that uh, in verse 10, that's the motto for Canada from Confederation, his dominion from sea to sea. It's actually taken from Psalm 72, verse 8. Uh, one of our fathers of Confederation was reading Psalm 72, in the days uh, when the Constitution was being put together, and in Prince Edward Island, by the way, uh, and that was the the phrase that was for the motto of Canada. Now we're no longer called a dominion, but originally it was the dominion of Canada from sea to sea, taken from there. And then we find it in this verse in Zechariah chapter nine. Well, that will be true of the Lord Jesus in a coming day. But it's an amazing thing when Zechariah says in verse nine about the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's a, a remarkable thing that he would come riding on a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I don't know much about farming. We just read in chapter 13 of those people would lie and say, well, I was a farmer from my youth. But I don't think it's uh, probably very easy to ride, ride a colt that hasn't been broken. I'm not sure about that. I don't think it's something I'd want to do. Now, the other thing, the, the donkeys today in Israel are very small. Uh, you can ride a donkey and walk at the same time. They're not, uh, not donkeys like we have. They're very uh, small. I, I, felt, uh, I felt terrible for the donkey when I got on it uh, because it was, uh, it was so small. But uh, obviously, some of them were a bit bigger in those days. But the Lord Jesus is going to ride not just on a donkey, but on the colt, unbroken. And so Zechariah is saying this. Uh, 500 and, and, uh, what, 550 years before it happened. He's saying this is what's going, uh, going to happen. Now, of course, somebody could look back and say, well, so-and-so wrote this, I think I'll do it. But to actually get on a colt that's been unbroken and do it would be another matter. It might be fun to say, well, I'm going to do it, and then people think I'm fulfilling prophecy. But to actually do it would be a difficult thing. It also it says he's lowly. Now, the word lowly there means poor or afflicted, uh, a man of sorrows, as we've been thinking about uh, this morning. So it's almost a contradiction. Your king is coming, but he's lowly and riding on a donkey. Uh, you'd usually think of a king coming, riding on a white horse, but here he's coming, he's a king, but he's, he's a man of sorrows. He's meek, he's lowly, as the Lord Jesus said about him himself. But this, the fulfillment is amazing, and I want to turn to Matthew 21, just to see how this came about and what happened on that day. 
and perhaps it's not so obvious as you read the the account in Matthew 21, but it's a remarkable fulfillment. And so we'll read in Matthew 21 the fulfillment of this. Verse 1, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, remarkable fulfillment. And so, uh, there's some wonderful lessons in here. Let me just suggest uh, sort of an aside. These two disciples are unnamed who are sent. And so, they get no credit for it. We don't know today who they were. Uh, We don't know if it's Peter and John or who they were, but two of the disciples were chosen to go uh, with with this uh, mission. And never any credit given. Now, uh, it's a very difficult mission in some ways. I mean, if somebody said to you, you know, there's a Cadillac on the other side of uh, of Claremont here, you just go and uh, the keys will be in it. You just take it. If anybody says, what are you doing? You just tell them, well, Lanny sent me. Don't worry. And uh, they'll let their Cadillac go. I mean, it's not going to happen. So uh, how this all worked out, I don't know. But these two disciples didn't obviously know all the things that would take place or could take place, but they're obedient, and they they go. And the, there's a lesson in here, I think, for us is uh, great things happened that day because they did a little thing. Uh, if they hadn't, theoretically, if they hadn't done the little thing, would the great thing happen? And so in our life, all the Lord wants us to do is to be obedient. And who knows out of our obedience if the Lord will do, do something great. Uh, you know, the man who led D.L. Moody to the Lord obviously didn't realize what was going to happen. D.L. Moody was illiterate. He couldn't neither read nor write when he became a Christian. And yet he ended up preaching to more people in the world than anybody else that had ever lived before him. Uh, The man who went had a burden. Uh, He felt he should go and witness to him, and he got saved. Uh, And so these two did something out of obedience, and something great happened. But as you read this, does it ever, have you ever wondered, well, why were the crowds there? Why were so many people there that day? Uh, There was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there's no whatever else people have these days. I was born too soon for some of this stuff. But um, how did it all get out that he was going to come? Why were they outside the city? Why were they lined the roads? Why did they have palm branches? Uh, What happened, what was happening was, this is five days before the Passover, And so the priests had gone out previous to this, and they'd chosen a lamb out in the countryside uh, from some flock, chosen a lamb that was spotless, that was perfect, that could be used as the Passover lamb to be killed in the temple. You know, people would kill the Passover lamb in their own house. It was like a Christmas-type thing. They had Passover. They'd kill a lamb. They'd eat it. But in the temple, there was a lamb 
uh, that was chosen, selected, and would be killed. It would be killed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the same time that the Lord Jesus Christ died. When he said, it is finished, that's when the priest would have killed that Passover lamb. So a lamb for the nation, we might say. Well, on Palm Sunday, what happened was the priests would be going out of the city, getting that lamb and bringing it back into the city. So that's why the crowds were there. They were there because the Passover lamb was going to come into the city. And when you think of coincidences, this can't be a coincidence. Uh, Just at that very moment, the Lord Jesus has this colt that he's riding on, and he comes into the city with this procession. And so uh, as they're shouting... Uh, about uh, Hosanna, salvation is of God, uh, Lord save us, Hosanna to the son of uh, David. <coughs> they're not necessarily thinking uh, specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're thinking of God's promises to them. But at this very moment, you have the Passover lamb and you have the lamb of God, as John says, coming in the city at the same time. And you have these crowds gathered and they're welcoming uh, him and uh, proclaiming these things. And, you know, you may have seen coincidences in your life. I've shared a few that we've had here uh, in Florida, some amazing coincidences. But this is, this is a phenomenal coincidence, that at that very moment, all these things are happening, and the Lamb of God, the real Passover Lamb, First uh, Corinthians 5, Christ our Passover is slain for us. The real Passover Lamb comes in at that very moment and gets acknowledged. And so what... Uh, Zechariah prophesied comes comes true. He would have come into uh, Jerusalem through that eastern gate uh, and into the, the uh, Temple Mount area, uh, just as that lamb was. Now, if you're in Jerusalem today, that eastern gate is walled up. It's said that in 1917, when General Allenby and the British conquered the city, uh, the gate could have been opened. Uh, they offered to open it for him, but he instead went through another gate. He had a white horse, and instead of riding on the white horse, he walked in. He was a Christian. He didn't want to mimic or in any way portray what Zechariah had to say. And so it's a remarkable thing that this prophecy came true in such a wonderful way. Later that week, when the Lord Jesus was put on the cross, the inscription over top was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Again, a contradiction in terms. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Well, here's the king of the Jews. And so your king comes to you. He's lowly. He's a man of sorrows, and he's just riding on a donkey. In Revelation 19, when he comes back again, he'll be on a white horse. Very different uh, sort of uh, picture. But it's just wonderful how this this came true. So back to, to Zechariah now and to chapter 11. And here in chapter 11, there is a, it's not an actual literal story. It's like a parable or an allegory. So remember, we're talking about the fact that when we read scripture, we interpret it literally, but we understand there's figures of speech. One of the things that people find difficult in learning another language is what we would call colloquialisms, figures of speech, things we, we say that mean something to us but wouldn't mean much to somebody else. So you might have said one day this week it was raining cats and dogs. And so if you're learning English for the first time, you might be wondering, what are these people talking about? You say, oh, cats and dogs. I don't see them falling from the sky. But we understand 
that type of thing. So we, we take it literally in the sense that it's a figure of speech. We know what, what people are, are talking about. And so here, there's, it's allegorical. He's, he's describing a scene, and we understand it's a figure of speech. And so we take it literally, understanding the grammar and the type of literature that's being presented. So in chapter 11, he's talking about shepherds. And several times in the Old Testament, God does this. In Ezekiel 34, if you read that chapter, he talks about shepherds in Israel. And when he's talking about shepherds, he's not talking about sheep and shepherds. He's talking about people uh, and their leaders, the religious leaders who should be like shepherds. Quite often in the Old Testament, when God wanted somebody uh, for a role or position, he chose a shepherd, people like Moses and like David, because uh, they had a heart for that sort of thing. The New Testament, elders are referred to as shepherds, those who pastor, who shepherd uh, the flock. And so that's what God's talking about here, talking about uh, shepherds uh, in, this, in this chapter and talking about poor shepherds. So if we read in verse 4, this is Zechariah 11 and verse 4, Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but I will indeed, or, or, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So it's not sort of clear a, B, C, D, this is what's going to happen. Again, it's a, an allegory saying these people, this is the way they're taking care of the flock. They're benefiting. They're getting rich. They're thinking, well, everything's good. I don't need to worry. And then God says in verse 7, So I fled the, fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other bonds. And I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. And so there is a mutual distrust or hatred. Verse 9, Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left each eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus says the poor of the flock who were watching me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. So what he's, he's saying, I'm not going to uh, you know, do anything good for this because of the way uh, the shepherds are, are behaving. And then we come to verse 12, where he says, Then I said to, him, to them, If it's agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut my other staff band, bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So again, you can see it's not, he's not talking about something you actually saw, something that happened. He's talking in allegories, painting a picture so that we could understand. It's like a parable. He's giving us a picture. But in this picture, he presents himself as the shepherd. And he says, in essence, you don't want me, so I want my severance pay. 
you pay me what you think I'm worth. You know, if, uh, if somebody gets laid off and they've been at a company for a long time, or if you get unjustly fired, you may, you may get severance pay. They may say, uh, here's a year's wages or two years' wages or whatever. They give you uh, severance pay. Well, here, the idea is uh, he's saying to them, what do you think I'm worth? Give me that as my severance pay. And so, uh, you know, we might be surprised when we read, we read, well, 30 pieces of silver. Imagine that. That's a severance pay is 30 pieces of silver. Well, where did they get that sum or that price? Where did that come? Uh, turn back to Exodus 21. Good job you sang that song in the books of the Bible. What book comes after Genesis? What chapter comes after 20? <laughs> now, in the book of Exodus, in this part, God gives laws uh, governing behavior and uh, commerce, lots of things, hygiene, all sorts of issues God covers. And in, here in, Ex, in Exodus 21, he talks about servants in the first few verses, but he also talks about uh, accidental death or a, a manslaughter in verses 28 to the end of the chapter. And so that relates to what we're going to talk about in Zechariah. So let's read from Exodus 21, verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. So I think we can understand that. An animal kills a person, that animal dies for it. But it wasn't the owner's fault. If you you know, if you try to cross a field and there's a bull in the field, I think I saw a sign on a fence once that said, uh, feel free to cross this field. This bull can run at, tw- at whatever, 30 miles an hour. If you can run that fast, uh, go ahead. And so uh, it wouldn't be the owner's fault if this has never happened. But in verse 29, but if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in the times past and it has been made known to his owner and he's not kept it confined, so it killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If there's imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. And so here's a provision. So if you have an ox or some sort of animal and you know it's attacked people before, you know it's aggressive and you don't keep it penned up, if you don't watch over it and something happens, then you are liable, you're culpable, you're part of the problem. You knew it could do that and you allowed it to happen. So the animal's killed, but you're under the penalty of death. But the provision is that uh, you could pay a fine, you could pay a price. Today, of course, in our society, you'd sue somebody, right? If they were responsible, uh, you would sue them or their insurance company and say, you know, they did this, they knew the animal would do this, and and they didn't take uh, precautions. And so he could get out of it if the person, if the parents of the person who was killed said, well, we'll take such and such amount of money instead of this man's life, then he could be off free. Now, you can understand that happening in a small community. Uh, it might have been your brother-in-law. Who knows? We have some here. I mean, who knows? Uh, it could have been somebody like that, and you'd rather have his money than his life. And so uh, you could impose a fine on them. But the parents decided. 
what the fine would be, what the amount of rent, ransom money would be. But when we come to verse uh, 32, if an ox scores a male or a female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stolen. So the price of a slave or a servant was set at 30 pieces of silver. So a child dies and the parents decide the worth, the value, the ransom, the price to be paid. But if a servant dies, the law says, here's the price, 30 pieces of silver. And so when you think of this in the law, then you think of what Zechariah said uh, in that allegory, what's my worth, what are you going to give to me? Say, well, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. They're giving the price of a slave. That's their their valuation. There's an American poet, William Blaine. He's wrote a poem uh, about 30 pieces of silver. And he he says in the first verse, uh, 30 pieces of silver they gave for the Lord of, of life. 30 pieces of silver, only the price of a slave. And that was what they valued him at. So back to Zechariah. Uh, chapter 11, that's the value they placed on him. Now, uh, again, it's a remarkable thing. You'd think with inflation, the price would change. But there it was in Exodus. Here it is in Zechariah. And then when Judas goes to the high priest, what's the valuation? 30 pieces of silver, only the price of a slave. But back in Zechariah, in chapter 11, notice what else they did for it, uh, with it. Uh, In verse 12, they weighed out for me my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Again, this is part of an allegory. It's not something that Zechariah went and did physically. But he's saying, here's what I want to depict. Here's what I want to show. What did Judas do? after he recognized, I've, I've betrayed the blood of an innocent man. He took that 30 pieces of silver and he threw it in front of the priests in the temple. Exactly what it says here. So he threw it. Now Judas, not likely, was doing that because he thought, oh, I remember Zacharias said this, and this is what I've got to do. I've got to throw it there. He was feeling terrible for what he did. Uh, it wasn't repentance, but it was, it was a sorrow for, for what he did, betraying the blood of a innocent man. And so he throws it in the temple. But the high priest said, well, we can't take that. We can't use it for normal temple activities. Uh, it's stained. It's, uh, it's, it's defiled in the sense of what it's been used for. We can't do that. So what did they do with it? They went and bought a, what we would call, a potter's field, where the poor who could not afford a burial plot would be buried. And so here Uh, He says, here's what's going to happen. You throw it in the temple, they take it and give it to the potter. Well, they buy a potter's field with it. 520 years before it happens, or 550 years before it happens. How did Zechariah know there's going to be 30 pieces of silver? What amazes me, just this is just an aside, is that so much of what happened in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, that the, the leaders of the Jews did fulfilled scripture that they knew. I mean, if I were a high priest at that time, I'd say, I'll give you 29 pieces of silver. I'll give you 31 pieces of silver. I'll give you 40 pieces of silver. There's no way you would say, I'll give you 30 pieces of silver. 
time and time again, they did the things that fulfilled Scripture, Scriptures that they knew, and yet there they were fulfilling them. And so it's remarkable. Now, when you, when you think of uh, Judas and what he did, there's another sort of historical uh, figure. Twice in the Psalms, David makes a reference to one who turned against him. So Psalm 41 and Psalm 55, he talks about his friend. Uh, he talks about the one he went to the temple, they worshiped together, but he's, he ate bread at my table, but he's lifted up his heel against me. And the Lord Jesus quotes those verses about Judas. David was talking about a man by the name of Ahithophel. That's a mouthful. Ahithophel, uh, who was his best friend, his counselor. But he also happened to be the grandfather of a girl by the name of Bathsheba. And so when Absalom rebelled, that was Ahithophel's chance to get revenge. And he went over to Absalom's side and gave Absalom counsel. And he was a very wise counselor. But God turned things around and didn't allow Ahithophel's counsel to stand. And, and uh, Absalom went and asked the young men, well, what should I do? And he followed their counsel. And David was able to gather his men, gather his army, and David returned victorious. But remember what Ahithophel did. When he found out his advice wasn't followed, he set his house in order and went out and hanged himself. The same end as, as Judas. So there you have a, a person who becomes a picture in how close and associated they was with David, just as, as Judas was with the Lord Jesus. Interesting with Judas, when the Lord in the upper room said, somebody's going to betray me, they, nobody thought of Judas. They said, is it me? I mean, imagine that. Uh, is it me? And, and they didn't have a clue that it was going to be Judas that did it. But Judas uh, goes out and he does this. Satan entered into him. But it's remarkable, isn't it, that Zechariah has such details here, 550 years before it happens, uh, that these things are mentioned, are talked about uh, here, uh, thrown in the temple for the potter. Now look at uh, chapter 13 in verse 7. Now there's a little more cryptic perhaps, not quite so obvious as uh, those other prophecies, but in chapter 13 verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so if we go over to, uh, to Mark's gospel, chapter 14, Mark 14, we find these verses quoted. Verse 27, Mark 14, 27. And Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet not I. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that, say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And uh, Peter responded more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Well, what happened when he was arrested? All but uh, one ran away. They were scattered. Uh, strike the sheep, shepherd and the sheep are scattered. And so Zechariah 
Now it says that back in chapter 13, verse 7, what we read. Now it also says against the man who is my companion. Uh, companion in this sense is more than somebody just hangs around with me. Uh, there is a phrase in Psalm 80 about the man at my right hand, the one who is my equal. And so here really is a, uh, a declaration that this one who is the shepherd is going to be much more than just a shepherd. This is the one who is God manifest in the flesh. But strike the shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. He came to give his life for the sake of the sheep. And so you strike the sheep, the shepherd, and the sheep uh, will be scattered. And then there's one final uh, thought I want to share about the Lord Jesus is in chapter 12, verse 10. Now this refers to a future day. It's uh, talking about a time when the Lord Jesus will come back or just before he comes back to earth again to set up his kingdom. But in Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. And so it's amazing, again, that Zechariah, 550 years before it happened, says, they'll look on me who they pierced. Now, again, uh, what's remarkable, both here in Psalm 22, where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet, that uh, this would only happen in a death like crucifixion. The Jews were going to uh, kill somebody through capital punishment. It would be by stoning. They would gather around. We see that in Acts 7 with Stephen. He was stoned to death. That was their means of, of capital punishment. They would hang someone on the tree after as a final desecration, a final mark of, of disdain. And, uh, you know, the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. And so they're putting them up on a tree to say, here's this one is, is cursed. But how did Zechariah know that he was going to be pierced? I mean, it's only by the Holy Spirit, by revelation, that he would know. Crucifixion didn't happen at this period of time. And yet, uh, Psalm 22 and and here describes uh, the agonies, Psalm 22 in particular, the agonies of crucifixion, that type of death, the tongue cleaving to the mouth and bones being out of joint and all those things. And yet, and here as well, look on me who you pierce. Now, Zechariah is talking about the eye of faith. Uh, He's talking about in the tribulation period. They're going to, uh, through a series of events, and we'll think about some of these on, on Wednesday night, through a series of events, they're going to look back and say, yes, our Messiah came. It was interesting, we were at a men's breakfast in January, and there's a Jewish man there, and uh, his, phrase, his thought or words that he expressed were, we're still waiting for our Messiah to come. That's what he said to us. We are still waiting for our Messiah to come. Well, when certain things happen in the tribulation period, by the eye of faith, they'll look back and say, uh, they'll look on him whom they pierced. They'll mourn, they'll repent, they'll come, and turn around and say, he's already come. We should have accepted him. He's the one we crucified. We rejected him. But he should have, we should have accepted 
Yeah. So it's remarkable, isn't it, when you think Zechariah, 550 years before the time, writes these things uh, so accurately fulfilled in the life and experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God knows the future. He knows our future. Well, we know our future too. We're believers. We know that our future is secure because Christ died for us. We accept him as our Savior. Our future is secure in heaven. We know that. God knows the future, and we can trust and believe him. One of the things that uh, gives us confidence in God, of course, it's by faith, but if you go to a doctor and the doctor uh, prescribes something and he's right 10 times, when you go the 11th time, you'll believe that he's going to be right again. If you've gone 10 times and he's been wrong in his diagnosis every time, you you'll be finding another doctor. Well, when you look back on fulfilled prophecy and you say, yes, God said this about the first coming of Christ, I can certainly trust him about the second coming. I can trust him about my future for sure because history, uh, prophecy, evidence is there to prove our God knows what's going to happen. So Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll look at uh, the future for Israel and the return of Christ uh, to earth as expressed in chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for these prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Remarkable that they were penned so many centuries before he came. And yet, Zechariah, by the Spirit, knew about his coming in Jerusalem, uh, knew about the betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, knew about the fact that he'd be uh, pierced uh, by means of uh, crucifixion, He knew that the disciples, the sheep, would be scattered, and so we marvel at these things. But we rejoice, too, that we know a God and serve a God who is sovereign and in control. Nothing takes you by surprise. Nothing enters into our life or happens to us that hasn't passed through your hand, first of all. And we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, our future is secure, a home in heaven, because our sins are forgiven when we accept him as our Savior. So watch over us, we pray, as we separate. Help us to just think on these things and enjoy them in the coming days. We pray in the Savior's name. Amen.